So prayer, it's a ubiquitous word used in every corner of our society. It's a word that almost has lost its meaning because you hear it said everywhere. Musicians have given us living on a prayer, maybe the best wedding song ever, and say a little prayer, thank you, Aretha. Artists have also depicted praying through the infamous prayer hands. Also now, an emoji, maybe the highest form of success. And even politicians and leaders get in on the game, mostly when something bad happens. The word prayer has also become uh, just synonymous with bad things happening. Our Christian circles aren't much different. We use the word all the time. How many times have you heard, I'll be praying for you? Maybe you've experienced prayer as like the last two minutes of your time together. Or maybe it's just become those routine words said at the beginning of a meal. All this to be said, this word prayer, what does it actually mean? It's been consumed by our culture. So we've quickly surveyed that idea. Uh, So this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor and get used to this today. We're going to be very interactive today, so hopefully everybody gets excited. I want to hear some some boisterous discussion going on. So I want to ask you, how do you define prayer? What does prayer look like to you? So again, take a minute, turn to somebody sitting next to you, in front of, behind you, and share. What does prayer look like to you? All right, hopefully you're getting to know somebody new maybe this morning, getting to know a little bit more about what prayer is to you. All right, so for our time today, we're going to use a very simple definition of prayer. It's this. Prayer is the conscious effort of communing with God and turning towards him. Said maybe even more simply, prayer is a time of connection with God. And so this morning, we're not going to investigate the different ways to engage with God. There are tons of resources out there for that. If you have questions, we can certainly help you, uh, point you in that direction. Uh, But this morning, we're going to get to the heart of the why. And nothing gets at that question better than, why do you pray? Think about it. Why do you pray? The reasons I pray run the gamut. I pray because I know I'm supposed to. I pray because I'm desperate. I pray because I feel peaceful as I do it. I pray to sound holy. I pray to know God. So today, we have a choice set before us. I actually believe every day we have this choice. We can choose to turn towards God or away from him. We can choose to turn our affections and thoughts unto God, or we can choose idolatry and self-worship. Every day, every moment, we choose God or something else. So as you heard Brad said, today marks uh, Soma Praise, our yearly journey into the focused time of prayer as a church. 
And our hope is that this, this time will align our hearts with growing in satisfaction with Jesus alone. And this year, we're going to use the book of Psalms to guide our five weeks through Soma Praise. So each message will be focused on a single psalm, and then throughout the week, in your family dinners, in your DNAs, in your personal formation time, you're going to dive in further into that psalm. I would also encourage you to take these five weeks as a chance to, to either revisit your personal formation plan or as a time to get started into that personal formation plan. A couple months ago, Brad put on a great training about personal formation plans, and then he and Sarah posted some videos on the website that can really explain the heart behind a personal formation plan and, and also help you get started. And this season of prayer provides that perfect opportunity to grow in the practice of prayer. So again, make sure you take one of those booklets home with you. So today we're going to start the beginning of the Psalter in Psalm 1. This psalm introduces this book. And it's that book that's in the middle of the Bible that can seem so out of place. I know it feels that way for me. It's so hard to pin down It's hard to know exactly what to do with the book of Psalms. But it is, quite simply, a collection of prayers and songs written by the ancient Israelites. And these poetic words fit into the greater story of God as they help us to know God's character through the experiences of people who have walked before us. While the scriptures give us the narrative story of Israel on the large stage, right, starting with Genesis, which we just walked through, here in the Psalms we learn the emotional, the spiritual, and the personal details of that story. We see how it affected specific, actual people as the authors of these Psalms have literally poured out their souls to God. And we get to read that now, so many years later. So if you have your, a Bible or, or your phones, we're going to read Psalm 1 this morning. <clears throat> Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is God's word. So the first thing that I want to know after reading this Who are the wicked? I mean, what a strong word. 
And it's easy for my mind to just immediately think of the Broadway musical with catchy songs. But let me tell you, this psalm is quite assuredly not referencing a green witch. Here, the psalmist is defining the wicked as those who are unproductive, unuseful, ungrounded, blown away, mockers, destroyed. Yikes, a serious indictment. What do we make of this? I ask you to think back to the messages we've preached so far this year about Genesis and the origins of sorrow. After the rebellion of man, right, the trajectory and escalation of sin continued on as the story progressed, as the people got farther and farther and farther away from God. And all this culminated in both the flood and its destruction of almost every living thing, as well as the Tower of Babel and the confusing of languages and the scattering of people. That is where we're seeing the wicked come from. And our psalm, again, states that the wicked are like the chaff that the wind blows away. So I'll be honest, I had to Google chaff. In all my years of reading the Bible, I'm not sure I had a great idea of specifically what chaff looks like. So, here's a picture. You're welcome. Now you all know. And as one does, when you start Googling stuff, you start to learn a little bit more. So chaff is a waste product of the agricultural process of harvesting wheat. Let me say it again. It's a waste product. It's discarded. It's often burned. Why? It's indigestible by humans, incompatible for consumption. It literally passes through the body. Not good. But the chaff, though, it starts as part of the grain, part of the good stuff. So see this next photo. While the the wheat is in the ground, you have what you see in the middle, just a, just a piece of wheat. But then as part of the, the harvesting process, the chaff is separated from the wheat. So that chaff is actually the hull that protects the wheat kernel, the part that we want to eat. It's to the untrained eye, which would certainly be me, it's, it would be hard to tell which is which from simply looking at it. So now you have a good idea of chaff and what the psalmist is describing as wicked. And I'm pretty sure here that nobody is a farmer for a living. So how do we we let this hit closer to home? Let's take our city, Los Angeles, the city of angels. It sounds so lofty, so wonderful. And there is so much to love about our city. I mean, just look at that picture, right? That's, uh, that's the Bayona wetlands and the, the Santa Monica Mountains. I mean, it's beautiful. And there are so many people here. A sea of humanity. People made in God's image. Everywhere. From all different races and cultures and socioeconomic backgrounds. There's so much potential and so much hope. But... If we look just a little deeper, our city is rife 
with wickedness. Our city mocks truth. It chases beauty, fame, and fortune. Our city says only these things can make you happy. Only these things can bring you satisfaction. These are the messages that we then add to our lives because they appear good and worth giving ourselves to. It's so easy to believe that achieving more is the way to inner peace. And it's easy to think that just a little bit more money will make life a little bit more worth it. Just like that wheat, which at one point has, the, has that hole as part of it. Yet the ideals of this city are often incompatible with human flourishing. Like chaff, if we chase after the hopes and dreams that the city wants us to, we will float away, forgotten, unwanted, gone. So I told you you were going to be engaged today. So let me ask you. Most everybody in this room lives here. What messages does the city whisper to you? Or said differently, what false idols have you chased? Or what false idols do you struggle to separate yourself from? So again, what messages does the city whisper to you? And again, if you're new here, you get to speak out loud in front of everybody. One more. What does the city speak to you?
Thanks, Marissa. So as we continue kind of this discussion on, on wickedness, let me paint you another picture. The story of the golden calf. Let me set the scene for you. The people of Israel had just been miraculously rescued from Egypt and Pharaoh, their oppressor. They were delivered by God through the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea. God then provided manna, literal food from heaven, and water for his people wandering around in the desert. And now they are at the foot of Mount Sinai, and Moses is up the mountain meeting with God. In a lot of ways, in my opinion, these people had it made. They had a literal, tangible interaction with the Most High God and provision from the Creator of all things. Using our definition of prayer, this would appear to me the pinnacle of success. Yet, after a few short hours alone without Moses, while he's up on the mountain, the people make a stunning, stunningly fast about face. And they pervert what success looks like. They take matters literally into their own hands. They had seen physical manifestations of God, yet they gave their jewelry to create an idol, a poor representation of something beyond themselves. I'm convinced they knew this idol was 100% made up. It's so easy to look at a story like this and the golden calf and in our modern eyes and say like, what a bunch of idiots. Why would they do that? Yet I believe we still fall into this same trap now. Probably every single day. We know we can't take the things of the world with us. We know the worldly things of this life will blow away like chaff. Yet we do it anyway. Rather than pursuing God, we more wholeheartedly strive for success. A bigger house, a nicer car, a prettier body, more knowledge. Connecting with God can seem so hard when things aren't going our way. And our prayers don't seem to be answered. Prayerlessness is actually easier. We don't pray at all. And I think this gets to the heart of it. We choose things other than God and thus turn away from him. We are the wicked, just like the people of Israel. So what leads to this wickedness? How did the people of Israel, who were literally fed daily via miraculous interventions of God, turn to such obvious and overt and perverted wickedness? Our psalm today points us to the answer. These people's hearts were not set upon this God who had saved them. They were set on the things that were seen the daily trials and struggles and needs. That's what I would call prayerlessness. Hearts, thoughts, and affections turned away from God. Again, remember that grain that gets separated between the wheat and the chaff. Every day, we have a choice to choose the grain 
or the chaff. A life of wickedness and prayerlessness is day after day choosing the chaff. And at the end of your roughly 80 years of life on this earth, what will you have in your hands? Waste that is literally blown away by the wind. Now, I can't stand up here and act like this isn't the same story that plays out in my own life. I confess my sin of pride that comes out of my heart every day. It might not be obvious to the outside world, but it's in there, lingering in the deepest recesses of my own soul. I know how to play the part and act religious. I can be just like Cain in Genesis. I can perform the right rituals, and I can do what appears to be good. But again, our psalm today reminds us that this is a matter of the heart. So I promise you this psalm is not all doom and gloom. This psalm also offers us a glimpse of the way of the righteous. This righteousness we see echoed from the very first pages of the story. Right In Genesis, before we had the origins of sorrow, we had the origins of joy. God created humanity to commune with him, for humans to draw near to him, to bless the world through that relationship between God and man. So our understanding of prayerfulness plays out in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were connected to God through relationship. They walked with one another, and they were known by him. It's just like verse 2 of our song, which says that the righteous delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. So notice first it says the righteous delight and then meditate. Let's think of the meditating as an action while delighting is a posture of the heart. So there's no transactional level of obedience here. It does not say, if you meditate, then you will have delight. It actually says the opposite. Our delight, our connection to God, is first and foremost a position of our hearts. So prayerfulness, then, is a heart posture, one that desires God, a heart that needs the very words of God to be life-giving, a relationship with him that propels us and drives us towards himself and his purposes. All right, another opportunity for y'all to get to share with your neighbor You're probably all sick and tired of it already, but I think it's good for our souls to get to hear others and not just me speak about these things. So again, turn to your neighbor, maybe a different one this time, meet somebody else. How would you assess your own desire towards God? Do you delight? Do you run from God? Are you unsure? Are the good desires in you covered by that chaff? of the world, so things might be cloudy. So again, don't overthink this. Just take a moment 
and share what comes to mind with your neighbor. We'll take a minute to do that now. All right. So while prayerfulness stems from our heart's desires, it, it does also matter what we do. Specifically, as the passage says, what we meditate on, what we allow our mind to think about and muse over. God's law is perfect and good. This is what we should be thinking about. So even if your heart struggles to delight in God, and you shared that with each other this morning, know that thinking of the goodness of the law of God is still worthwhile for your soul. But I'm the first to admit my guilt in this as well. Let me promise you, I find tons of other things to think about. So let me name you just a few. Star Wars, tennis scores, fantasy basketball. Why are my coworkers so challenging? Is it time for the kids to take a nap yet? Why is my roof leaking and why is it still raining? I live in Los Angeles. The bathrooms need to be clean. When's my next homework assignment due? The list goes on and on and on. My mind rarely slows down and struggles to be filled with spiritual delight. But this psalm reminds me what is best. Meditating on the law, day and night, literally means all the time, every single waking moment. My mind can be fixed on the good things of God. So as we continue on in the psalm, verse 3 presents another beautiful visual. It tells us that the righteous are planted by streams of water. Why is this important? Three reasons. One, the righteous are located near water. They know where they are in relation to the life-giving water. And with all the rain that we've had this winter and the fact that, in case this is a surprise to you, we actually live in a desert, right, that needs water from elsewhere for us to all survive, it might be hard to remember that back when these psalms were written in an agriculturally-based society, water was life. Homes, villages, cities had to have access to water to survive. Being near water meant life, and being away from water meant death. Secondly, the righteous are planted. They aren't just resting by the water, enjoying the coolness on a hot day. This isn't a lounging by the pool type of water, uh, pardon me, lounging uh, by the pool type of life by the water. The righteous, they're dug in. They're committed to the life that this water brings. They're rooted, planted firm. This takes intention, purpose. There's an active pursuit of goodness implied here. It's not just recognizing that there's evil around us and staying away from it. It's actively pursuing the good. 
And thirdly, the righteous are known. Verse 6 tells us that the Lord watches over them. Does anything sound better than that? That God, the creator of all things, specifically watching over you with love and provision? He knows you and sees you. Sounds pretty good to me. But a quick side note of caution. Verse 3 does say, whatever the righteous does prospers. This doesn't mean storms won't come. As a tree planted by a stream, there's no guarantee of safety from attack by pests or that the branches might bend and creak in the wind or that maybe that water might slow to a trickle in seasons. There's no prosperity gospel here. No magical insurance policy that life will go easy for you. The word prosper here means exactly what it says in the verse. That the tree will yield fruit in season and the leaf will not wither. Neither of those phrases promise smooth sailing. What they do promise is to point us back to the water from whom without none of this would be possible. Trees were made to drink water and bear fruit. And the passage says that if that tree is planted by the life-giving water, with roots firmly planted, fruit will come. If that tree, oppositely, is planted in a desert, that will not happen. So I promised you didn't have to talk to your neighbor, but you do have to talk one more time. So do any of you know somebody like this? An image of this prayerfulness, of someone that comes to your mind when you think of, wow, that, really, that person really knows God. Their soul is so deep and firm and rooted in God. Their soul is such at peace. It can be so easy for us to explain like what prayer isn't, but this morning I want us to have a little bit of a picture from, from our family. What does prayer look like to you? Who in your life do you see this in? So specifically, let me ask, who is the most prayerful person you know and why? What about them exudes peace or connectedness to God or that their soul is in deep communion with him? So I'd like to hear from a couple folks of who is that prayerful person that you know in your life. Uh, Welcome. She does seem to always be at peace. It's hard to see. I've never seen her rattled. Um, Daniel's told me stories about, you know how you wake up in the middle of the night and you go to the bathroom or whatever. Like, when Daniel was a kid, 
she has stories of waking up going to the bathroom and downstairs you hear her mother like praying for the family at like 3 a.m. Like crazy stuff that you're like, who does that? Like she actually tells stories of doing that. Um, and then when you talk with her about things going on in your life, like she has a, it's like a grace and a level of insight into what she, how she advises you when you're talking to her. And I guess the metaphor would be someone's drawn up a deep well. Mm. And she's not just throwing stuff at you she heard on Instagram or something in passing. Like, you can tell this is someone who's spent a lot of time with God talking yeah. through the types of issues that come up in life. Yeah. Um, other thing I'll say is, like, when you talk to her, God is never, like, the spice or the accessory in the conversation. Like, oh, yeah, God, he's really awesome, can help you with stuff, right? Because we're Christian. Like, she starts with God. Mm. Like, that he is the substance, he is the, the core of the conversation. And she always calls you back to him. Amen. Thank you. So, too bad she's in Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Josh. So, okay, um, I think uh, my, my friend Eric, who lives in Indianapolis with a pastor there, I know him from Arizona. Um, this morning, Paul actually first showed me, really, she did show me kind of a, a conversational um, mm. relationship with God. You know, and more so than conversational, I think the first person that I that really started to consist the idea that we live in the spiritual realm, you know, where that's constantly around us, and that like actually paying attention to that, mm-hmm. um, and like we're paying attention to. And so I think that was the one I was like, oh yeah, like we can pay attention to those things and just see God in certain ways. Um, so that was something that really was like, yeah, I'm learning from him. It's like, oh yeah, that's 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 a truth. Like, yeah. We're in the spiritual realm. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Nate. Very cool. Well, thank you all for sharing it. And to, to piggyback on what Ali said, actually, I want to encourage our entire family here that last weekend, we all got to see what prayer looks like. Our dear sister, Andrea, laid in a hospital bed, non-responsive, for almost two full days. This family prayed I know that people gathered together to pray. People prayed without ceasing. People turned to God in desperation because there were no answers. There were no other options. We stood face to face with our need as a family. And we fell on our face before Jesus. So we were all reminded that there is only one person to go to. It was such a beautiful, shining example 
of what prayer can be. So this all leads us to a question. What will you choose? Prayerfulness that leads to life or prayerlessness that leads to destruction? I long for this family, our body here in Culver City, to desire to be prayerful, that we would submit ourselves to the authority of the scriptures, that we would turn our hearts and affections towards God, that we would be more and more reliant on the truth of his word as opposed to our own prideful wisdom that flows from ourselves. But how? How does this happen? Is it simple obedience? Is it do more? Try harder? No, church. Praise God, no. While the law can provide a means of transactional obedience, what is needed is something more. We need full heart change to be able to live like the righteous. We need a new mind to be able to behold God day and night. We need life-giving water. And hear this today. Jesus is that life-giving water. The good news is that Jesus fulfills this psalm in every way imaginable. I'm going to give you three scriptures that show Jesus embodying this psalm. First, Jesus is the living water. In John 4, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman this. If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, and would have asked him, he would have given you living water. He is the one who gives life to our souls. Jesus asserts himself here so clearly as the living water. He's the only one who can give that life to our souls and empower our ability to live life with God. And we see that further in John 7, where Jesus stands up and cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus is not only telling us to drink from him, not the waters of this world, not the waters of this city, not of our own abilities, but of Jesus. He also says that we will be changed and this same water will flow out of us. Secondly, Jesus has something to say about the posture of our heart. In John 5, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And hear this. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. This is not blind obedience. This is heart alignment. Jesus only wants to do what his Father does. That is delighting in the law of the Lord. 
And lastly, the Apostle Paul encourages us towards life with God in Romans 12, where he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In Christ, we can be transformed to be more and more like Jesus. The Spirit works in us not only to give us new hearts, but also new minds, transformed minds that will desire to meditate on God and to connect to him. These new hearts and new minds only come from faith in Jesus Christ alone. We need his living water to flow in us and out of us. And because of his life and his death and his resurrection, those who put faith in Jesus will be filled by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He is the only one who can change us. Jesus is the Word made flesh, a fulfillment of the law. And as that life-giving water that Jesus is, is flowing out, we can be like the trees planted on the banks as we build our life on him. For Jesus has made himself known to us. So once again, let me ask, what will you choose? The path of destruction? Believing the lies of the culture? Chasing after things that don't satisfy? At the end, will you be left standing with nothing but chaff in your hands? Or do you want to delight in the Lord and meditate on his word? So as we begin summer praise this year, I ask you, how will you choose righteousness, choose delight, and choose prayerfulness? A novelist once wrote, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn, yearn for the vast and endless sea. This quote beautifully sums up what we've talked about today. Rote, dry obedience does not change our hearts. If we only pray because we are told to or think it's the right thing to do, fruit will be hard to come by. True change and therefore true relationship only comes from deep heart change accomplished by Jesus. So recall our psalm today. There are no obedience demands for obedience is actually a product of our heart posture. The psalm invites us into relationship with God. We will no longer be burdened with building the boat exactly as the directions say, but instead we will spend ourselves on exploring how to immerse ourselves in the majesty of the sea. Only then will we experience deep joy and satisfaction for our souls. That's only available in Christ.
Let's pray. Jesus, you are the only one that can change us. The one our souls truly need. For you created us. You put that desire in us. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that you would start that change in us. Help us to turn to you, submit our souls to you, Lord, so that we could see your glory come here on this earth as it is in heaven. Amen.